today on Ag News Daily. One of Oklahoma's older farms that was settled in the land run of 1893, and I realize that's not uh, old in some states, but in Oklahoma it certainly is. And we are very fortunate that both of our families... Uh, well, listeners, welcome back. Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Here we are at the end of another week, October 20th, 2023. Did you have a good week, Delaney? I did. It's felt like a long week, though, surprisingly. Yeah, it could. Uh, I think I had like four Mondays this week. It just feels like as harvest season goes on every day, you kind of lose track of where and what you are doing. That's a good way to put it. Yes, I would agree. Well, right back in the weather as we start off. Looks like we still have some wildfire risks due to high winds and dry conditions. Most of Nebraska and western Iowa is going to see the brunt of that low humidity, high breeze. Fire danger will be considered in the high category for those parts of the Midwest. The southern plains temperatures are expected to break record highs. So we haven't talked about high temperatures for a little while you're looking at Border or Amarillo, both in the Texas Panhandle may see new highs this afternoon, breaking the record of 92 degrees Fahrenheit that was set in 2007. And Amarillo's was 90 degrees set in 2003. So I always find that interesting how cities have highs that were set in different years, even though they're geographically relatively close to each other. We are though looking in that region. The hot weather will potentially give way to some thunderstorms as the weekend builds. So they could see some winds uh, coming through today with the heat, pushing in a system that might bring a storm by the end of the weekend. If the moisture from the tropical storm Norma can combine with the moisture in the Gulf, this could create that low pressure system that we reported on earlier this week, Delaney, that could end up making most of the U.S. wet towards the middle of next week. Well, Tanner, it's because of some of those wetter conditions we saw in the last few weeks here that the U.S. Drought Monitor has uh, been a little less exacerbated, especially for folks in Iowa, Minnesota, and in the Western Corn Belt, Corn Belt in general. According to the latest U.S. Drought Monitor that was published on Thursday, improvement across much of the Twin Cities metro area, the eastern part of the Minnesota state and a few other key areas in Minnesota and Wisconsin saw a really improved drought condition with currently a little over just 1% of the state is an extreme drought in Minnesota. Meanwhile, still we're seeing areas experiencing at least dry conditions and that still makes up about 95% of the state of Minnesota. But all in all, they did see some improvement here going forward. Wisconsin also sees at least 23% in the severe drought category. However, that's down about 7% from the week prior. And Iowa also saw huge moves here as we got quite a bit of rain last week. And especially near the Cedar Rapids, Iowa area, those conditions in the state certainly helped with some rainfall. Exceptional drought, which is the worst dryness designation, has no longer been or is now downgraded in all parts of the state of Iowa, especially in those counties around the Cedar Rapids, Iowa area that got some timely rainfall. 
we saw that there are no longer any exceptional drought categories for the state of Iowa. Well, of course, Tanner, this is happening a little too late because combines are already rolling and we certainly didn't get timely rains in some areas. Therefore, a lot of folks are starting to once again, change USDA yields that we saw in the October WASD report. But we did see a little bit of a yield drag in some key states, such as Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri, on the latest WASD report. And some analysts are suggesting that we're going to continue to see that slide here in subsequent months, Tanner. Yeah, I talked to a couple of producers that when discussing yield and moisture in the fall, that the rain actually potentially hurts that yield whether it's due to crop condition or the ability to actually get in and do a good job. But others are happy that they were returning some soil moisture into that subsoil before we get into the winter uh, to be able to benefit next year's crop as well. We're looking at Smithfield Foods, the Chinese owner of those, WH Group, is working with banks now in the U.S. to see if they can take the pork producer public again. Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that people are continuing to work privately with WH Group to evaluate relisting Smithfield stock in the U.S. WH Group had provided uh, the Wall Street Journal with an emailed statement stating that they would continue to monitor this process. Now, it did not immediately get posted Delaney because there's been a couple of corrections to the steps that they plan on taking for this process. Obviously WH bought Smithfield in 2013 for $4.7 billion and since then it's been held privately. A couple of years ago Smithfield tried to uh, take the process of going public uh, and that caused a little bit of a snowstorm if uh, you'd like to say in the eyes of what that Chinese-owned pork-producing company should be valued at. The Virginia-based Smithfield is set to permanently close 35 hog sites in Missouri this year and lay off 92 employees in October, according to the, the Missouri Workers Association. U.S. meat industry has struggled a little bit since COVID-19 took over. So that's going to be the next biggest battle again with this potential public listing is coming up with an evaluation prior for where that release could go. So it'll be uh, very interesting to see. It's difficult, as stated in a statement from the WH group, to predict the spiraling feed and labor costs. Meat companies have struggled also to predict the demand for their products to where the evaluation may be an ever-changing figure prior to going public. So we'll keep an eye on that to see if Smithfield goes public in the U.S. based upon the directions of their ownership group, WH Group Delaney. Well, Tanner, here's an interesting piece of news for us on this Friday morning. As we discussed, uh, I think last week on the podcast about some PERS gene editing, we're also now seeing researchers out of the UK are moving forward with some gene editing technology to create a avian influenza resistant poultry. As they've been working through this, it's a long process and it's using CRISPR technology to help edit the gene code. As, so basically removing a piece of the code from the 
poultry's natural DNA, not necessarily inserting something new, but uh, studies are very promising. This is going to be a long hoe to a long road to hoe ahead, but gene edited birds have been continued to be tested and exposed to avian influenza. And so far about half of the chickens have had some infection while half have not. So they're working quickly here. As we know, that's a global issue that impacts tens of millions of chickens all over the world each year, Tanner. And uh, we could see some exciting developments here over the next few years. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of the path paved to some more going on in the future. We've got a couple of energy headlines, ethanol production rose inventory has continued to decline in a positive move for ethanol they rose to a five-week high while inventories dropped to the lowest level in almost two years so signaling some pretty strong demand there production of biofuel rose to 1.035 million barrels per day that's up from 1.004 the week before the inventories like we said uh, are the lowest in a, quite a while, dropped to 21.112. That was down from 21.526. Also staying on the energy side of things, Canada is working with their farmers to produce more opportunities for solar, obviously tied to the move for electric vehicles and the push for electric power appliances as far as what Canadians are looking at. The solution on farmland is a pivoting solar system and uh, not to be confused with the planets in the solar system, a solar array. So uh, the best I can describe when you look at the pictures in this article is the line of solar plant panels, which you'd expect to be kind of pitched in the direction of the sun, are actually on uh, a pivoting post that can follow the sun across the sky. But that pivoting motion gives them the opportunity to also be folded straight up and down vertically. This provides a farmer the opportunity to still farm in between the rows of solar panels. They would just select that mode to fold up into straight vertical, which could be set up on 30 foot spacings, 60 foot spacings, whichever is desired for these solar farms. The pivoting motion of those solar units, Delaney, allow natural sunlight to hit the crops that are planted in between or underneath when the solar panels are extended. So Canada is putting together an incentive program to see if this takes off. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. I thought that was worth sharing as it seems to be unique methods of incentivizing Kind of like when we saw windmills being put up, Delaney, here in the United States, trying to incentivize farmers to give rights to their land for solar farms. Well, Tanner, we've seen farmers' rights tried to be taken away under different government definitions of the waters of the U.S. rule. And we experienced another round of what folks are calling whiplash after the latest Biden administration announcement that came out here recently this week. Tanner, we uh, of course know that earlier this year, the Supreme Court ruled that the Biden administration's definition of WOTUS did go against, in fact, the Clean Waters Act, where waters of the U.S. are described and uh, in some detail. 
in of course that happened back in May and they gave the Biden administration time to change the waters of the US definition that they had. Well, we got word this week about the new Biden administration change to WOTUS and the administration made very minimal changes to its WOTUS definition to comply with the Supreme Court's new and stricter definitions of wetlands. According to a couple of congressmen and women, they said that this is likely going to go back to the Supreme Court because the Biden administration did not do enough to redefine and rewrite the waters of the U.S. rule. Under WOTUS, regulation to marshy areas with a continuous surface connection to streams, oceans, rivers, or lakes, is how the Supreme Court defined waters of the U.S., but previously the standard was wetlands with significant nexus to federal waters could be ruled a waters of the U.S. So I don't know what our next steps are from here, Tanner, but it sounds like there will be litigation coming from quite a few different folks and different agencies and organizations here as the Biden administration's newest definition of WOTUS does not, in many cases, feel like they did the due diligence to go back and rewrite WOTUS according to the Supreme Court's ruling from Sackett versus EPA. So it's not done and over, as uh, maybe some folks were thinking, Tanner. It's a long process ahead. Yeah, certainly sounds like it, but probably we had expected uh, a little bit there. I've just got... Ukraine and uh, Israel news to wrap up my headlines today. Kiev's forces made some headway this week on the southern front against Russia. They have continued to push Russian forces back north, recapturing some of their villages there on the southern Zaporia region. Uh, this is due to the additional longer range missiles provided from the United States. Ukrainian troops recaptured the parts of Kyrgyzstan in their region last year. This is the first big results that we've seen on the Ukrainian front since their counteroffensive had started about three months ago. Now, when we look at what is happening uh, in regards to Israel and Gaza region, the <clears throat> war continues to rage on. Conditions on the ground are worsening hour by hour. Reporters are stating due to their points, they don't have uh, fresh drinking water. A lot of reporters are being asked to leave the reporting space due to the conditions in the area. The post-siege, a lot of resources are in far back. There is the first convoy carrying humanitarian goods from Egypt. Won't cross until Saturday, so there's still a little bit of a delay until we get more supplies into that region for those who are in need. According to reports, majority of the hostages that were seized on October 7th are still alive in Gaza. The Israeli military says uh, they expect for them to stay in that condition, but obviously knowing that there is lack of food and water and other natural support for the victims, um, there is lessening hope. So it is a little bit of a glimmer of Light Delaney in both of those headlines, but uh, ultimately still a battle and a struggle going on. Absolutely. It certainly sounds it's a long, uh, long path forward here for both of those two areas that are experiencing some of these geopolitical challenges. But Tanner, I'm out of news here for today. Aside from looking at markets and as we head into today's final session of the week, we will have a Catalan Freed report coming out 
after markets close. So we'll be able to chat about that on Monday. But as we look at the Catalan feed report, this is going to show a wide variety of ranges from analysts that reflect cattle on feed as of October 1st. Early estimates are looking for 101% placement numbers, but there's a lot of uncertainty among those who were surveyed for some pre-report estimates. The bigger uncertainty also comes from the wide range of expectations and survey results as estimates range from 95 to 104%. There is a nearly a 10% difference there in guesses, Tanner, but this range represents a 200,000 head swing potentially in overall placements, which would continue to disrupt uh, cattle feeders if placements end up on either end of this range. So we will have more to come on this on Monday, but uh, it could be a market mover for us here on Monday when markets reopen. But in the meantime, here in the overnights, December corn is trading down a half, excuse me, up a half a cent at 505 and a half. New crop beans down five cents at 13.10 and a half. December wheat up two and a half cents at 596 and a half. Hard red December winter wheat up three and three quarter cents at 680. And December spring wheat just up a quarter of a cent here at the open at 739 and a quarter. Livestock Tanner and where they closed yesterday shed a dollar ninety. The December live cattle contract will open this morning at a buck eighty-five thirty. November feeder cattle shed five dollars and twenty-two and a half cents. That is limit down moves yesterday. We'll open this morning at 244.50 and lean hogs shed just two pennies in the December contract opening this morning at $68 even. Tanner, I'm very excited. We're chatting, having a fun conversation today with Chris Gosney of John's Farm to talk about some of the challenges they faced during COVID and how that changed their beef business. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, Tanner, today we're meeting the farmers behind John's Farm. Chris Gosney is joining us today and her and her husband own John's Farm. Super excited to dig more into their family's centennial family farm and some of the products they're sending directly to consumers. Chris, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be joining you today, especially on a beautiful fall day in Oklahoma. Absolutely. We're certainly excited to learn more about your story. So John's Farm is ran by you and your husband, but tell us the history of John's Farm. Well, it's uh, one of Oklahoma's older farms. It was settled in the land run of 1893, and I realize that's not uh, old in some states, but in Oklahoma it certainly is. And we are very fortunate that both of our families, uh, came during the land run, not knowing each other, of course. But uh, so we have uh, inherited our family farms. And in addition to some other properties that we own or rent, uh, we have now labeled ourselves John's Farm and are in the organic wheat and livestock business. Wow, that's exciting. That It's always fun to learn about the history of farms. Like you said, some states it's not that old, but uh, here in Iowa, we celebrate 100 years like it is a big deal. So congratulations on that part. Is it your heritage or your husband's heritage? What's the lineage there? 
Well, it's both actually. Um, John's grandpa made the land run and my great grandpa made the land run. So we're just so fortunate that we were able to inherit from both sides of our family and combine it into one operation. What is equally uh, as exciting is the fact that our grandson, who recently graduated from high school, uh, has moved now to our community and his goal is to, um, you know, assume the responsibility of the farm in the coming years. And uh, that's tremendous because for a while there, we weren't sure what would happen to John's farm, but I believe it has a very strong future. Well, that's really exciting. And I'm sure we'll dig more into the future there with your grandson coming up. But Chris, you mentioned that you're producing certified organic wheat and beef. Is that something that you and your husband started or does that lineage also go back to multiple generations? Well, you know, that lineage probably went back to 1893 because that's how everyone did everything. But over time, with the introduction of new technology, uh, our parents started using some of the commercial inputs uh, with the promise, of course, that yields would be better. And so certainly I don't uh, blame them one bit for giving that a try. But John and I actually converted back to organic, uh, you might say looking back to the future, in 1996, when we had just a small acreage of organic wheat. And then after several years, it was like, you know what, we just love this type of farming. And so we converted all of our cultivated land into the organic program. And then we go, well, you know, we have organic uh, land, we have organic pastures, we're not using any chemical inputs anymore. So maybe the best thing for us to do would be to uh, evolve our stalker steer operation into a cow-calf operation and go organic with it as well. So that took a few years, like 10, for us to uh, get all of that changed over and have adequate feed supply. Uh, we increased our alfalfa acres so we would have enough hay to get our herd through the winter and uh, so now we just are a totally organic program. We turned away from any conventional uh, methods and farming techniques, and we're far more regenerative, uh, organic, and our livestock are also grass finished. I know when we talk to other guests and their transition to organic, discovering that market is always one of their biggest challenges. Obviously changing your practices is something you control, but the market is usually ever-changing. How have you guys gone about discovering the market for your products? We were so fortunate because the first organic acres that we farmed, we actually rented from a gentleman who had organic experience. And our agreement with him was, is, you know, we don't know about organic, so you're going to have to help teach us. And then also tell us how it is we market this product. So he had a couple of uh, resources that he had used previously. He sent us to those. And after a time, you know, your name kind of gets out there to where we don't have to recruit so much now. We just wait for 
you know, the market to call us and make arrangements with various ones to uh, pick up our wheat. Now, livestock was different. Um, we started out in a very small way and went to a farmer's market. And that took several years to develop a clientele there. And then over time, um, we've just gradually expanded our outreach to direct uh, consumer sales. And in doing that, um, we were so fortunate that we had a website designed for online sales just prior by a couple of months to the outbreak of COVID. And that basically kept us in business, I believe I should say, because people were turning to online sales as opposed to getting out into the marketplace. And so we have just tried to build and build and build on that concept until we have a uh, very nice uh, market of individuals who are buying direct. We have three delivery routes uh, through the cross state of Oklahoma. We go across here three times a month and meet consumers. Um, I think that's probably the highlight of our business is getting to actually meet and greet the consumer and developing relationships with them. That's really exciting. And what a great coincidence that you had your online retail sales set up a few months before COVID, because I'm sure, as you mentioned there, that just really helped your business continue to grow. When you look at that time frame of COVID, we certainly saw, you know, a lot of consumers going or wanting that direct to the farm route. So how did that change your business? And how, do, how are you guys able to keep up with all of that demand? I'm sure you faced. Well, that was uh, certainly an adjustment factor because when COVID uh, rose its ugly head, well, we, prior to that, we were just processing, you know, once or twice a month and our processor um, was not booked up all the time. So I could call him and say, hey, could I bring a couple of calves in in a couple of weeks? And that was no problem. But when COVID hit us, everything became a problem. And he started getting calls from all over the nation wanting to bring their livestock to him as well. So he filled up. So I soon learned that, you know, I can no longer do what I've been doing. I have to expand that program. And we started arranging for processing appointments as much as a year in advance. And every time, you know, we would use one, I would book another one so that we stayed booked for 12 solid months at all times. That has lessened a little bit now to where if I have appointments six months out, I'm comfortable. Uh, the other thing that that did was it took us out of the direct sales so much and we started operating out of our home to where consumers came to the farm and picked up. So we would receive their orders online, pack them, put them in our delivery trailer, label everything very well, sanitize everything, keep hand sanitizer available for the consumer. They would come to the farm and pick up. We have gradually gotten away from the majority of that, although we still have people come to the farm and they're welcome to do so. But we are meeting the greatest percent of our customers on our delivery route again. 
That is pretty neat. Now, I know we've got a lot of listeners that might have a desire to start something like what you have going on. What what advice would you give someone who's maybe looking to get into something like this? Are you thinking more of getting into the organic or into the direct sales arena? Probably more generically with the direct sales of the beef. Well, I'd say get you a good uh, designer and build a website. And then I was very fortunate in that when we started direct sales and especially going to markets, I kept a database for email and phone numbers. And I looked around in those various uh, venues and I didn't see other producers doing that. Now, maybe they were and I just didn't notice, but I didn't notice it if they were. And so that gave us a database and a way to communicate with our customer. So even when COVID came, I already had this database so I could start communicating to my customers and saying, hey, we're, we're going to offer farm pickup and we'll arrange that with you at your convenience. Just order online and tell your neighbors if they're looking as well. So that was a huge advantage for us. And I have kept that pattern uh, to where I anticipate adding, which is not a lot, I realize, for some businesses, but I try to add 10 to 20 new email to my, my database every month. And building a relationship with your customer through that email that goes out twice a month, I don't know that you can actually put a dollar value on it because it's tremendous. Well, Chris, this is all really exciting. And as you mentioned earlier, you hopefully have some excitement here heading into the future as your grandson comes back to the farm and helps you continue to grow and expand it. But what does the future of John's farm look like right now? Well, we're solid right now, I think you could say. Uh, John, I, and our grandson, Kale, are managing the farm. And uh, I spend most of my time at the desk and the guys spend most of their time out in the fields and with the livestock. And, uh, you know, Kale's just a young guy and he wants to learn. That's why he came. He had an option. He could go to college if he wished and then come to the farm. And he said, nope, I'm going to the farm while Pop is really active and I can follow him around and learn from him. So we just feel like, you know, the generations will change but the farm will continue. This is such a great story. We really appreciate you taking the time. If our listeners want to check in on you or follow what you're doing, what's the best way for them to look you up? Well, of course, you can always go to the website, which is johnsfarm.com. And we have a social media presence. We are John's Farm OK, which stands for Oklahoma. So John's Farm OK is on Instagram. And we are also on Facebook. And we try to keep current postings on there just so people know what's happening here at John's Farm. We'd love to have them join us. It's always good to get perspective and uh, those that are honest in their answers. Uh, congratulations to them and building their business, hopefully continuing to build their family legacy. What a great story, Delaney. Of course, listeners, if you've got a story like that, we'd love to talk to you. Just reach out and let us know. But... It's the end of our week. We'll be back again Monday, right, Delaney? 
we certainly will, Tanner, with more great content for our listeners. So what do you say we let the folks go in the meantime? Let's let them go.